Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's 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 warm in the home of the homeless. I'll tell you, warmer here than in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, for for most of uh, most of this month so far, as a matter of fact. So if you want to really, uh, you know, burn your britches, come on out to um, the home of the homeless. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's look in on our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. There's been a lot of criticism as the migrant crisis has heated up in Europe. Uh, criticism from people in Europe. You know, those Europeans that... Um, while they're taking, they're being asked to take in a lot of migrants from Syria. Also, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but the BBC reported this week, roused themselves to report something, that among the migrants are not only people from Syria, but people from Iraq and Afghanistan. What's wrong there? Anyway, while the Europeans are being asked to take in all these migrants, they're complaining that the Gulf nations your uh, Emirates, your Saudi Arabia, are uh, not being uh, asked to make such efforts. The neighboring countries to Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, are awash with refugees. Not so Saudi Arabia. But the Independent reports that Saudi Arabia has responded to the crisis by uh, making an offer to Germany, which is, as you know, you may know housing or agreeing to uh, make room for a lot of migrants. Saudi Arabia has offered to build 200 mosques in Germany. Let them eat mosques. The, uh, the Emirates, as well as Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, and Bahrain, have uh, kept their doors firmly shut to asylum seekers. But Saudi Arabia would build one mosque for every 100 refugees who entered Germany. But uh, they're doing more, too. The Al Hayat newspaper reports that 500,000 Syrians had found homes in Saudi Arabia since the civil war began, not as refugees, but as workers. And you know how, how well they treat their workers. Ladies and gentlemen, the Vietnam War just won't stop having echoes in contemporary American life. The veterans who served in the so-called Blue Water Navy, that was the Navy that operated off the coast of Vietnam as opposed to the Brown Water Navy that operated on the murky rivers of Vietnam, those veterans may have been exposed to Agent Orange and other herbicides, even though most of them never set foot in Vietnam, where the spraying of Agent Orange took place. That's because the chemicals which were used to kill vegetation and deny enemy cover, what could be wrong with that, could have washed into rivers and out to sea where patrolling Navy vessels sucked in the water and distilled it for use aboard ships, a process that would have only concentrated the toxin. Well, if, if, if the toxins can concentrate, why can't we? This is a report from ProPublica, by the way. Every member of the crew would have been exposed. Distilled water was used in showers to wash laundry and to prepare food. It was used to make coffee as well. Agent Orange contained the toxic chemical dioxin, which has had harmful effects on Vietnam veterans. Thousands of former sailors are now seeking compensation from the VA for their ailments. 
The VA presumes any vet who served on land in Vietnam or on boats in its inland waters was exposed to the herbicide and compensates them for a litany of associated illnesses, including your diabetes, <laughs> including your diabetes, various cancers, Parkinson's disease, peripheral neuropathy, and a type of heart disease. The agency, though, has repeatedly argued there's no scientific justification or legal requirement for covering veterans who served off the coast. The Blue Water vets have been fighting the VA for more than 10 years. They're killing our veterans. They're like the Chinese. They were initially deemed eligible for compensation under the Agent Orange law. Yeah, there was one. Only to have the VA change the interpretation a decade later. But the VA says it's once again considering its policy on Blue Water vets after an appeals court ordered it to do so in April. But there's no timetable for a decision, so you vets can just wait outside. The Institute of Medicine used a theoretical model to assess the desalination process from the 1960s, which used a high heat flash to evaporate salt water and collect the salt-free condensation. The researchers found the process wouldn't have removed dioxin from the water, but instead would have enriched it by a factor of 10. The Institute couldn't rule out the possibility that some amount of Agent Orange sprayed from airplanes over Vietnam would have wafted out to sea. The Institute is a an arm of the congressionally chartered National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. What do they know? I'm with the VA. Screw them. And, ladies and gentlemen, some good news for, again, dredging up the past. O.J. Simpson, tell your kids who that is. O.J. Simpson, ask your dad. O.J. Simpson won't get a retrial of his conviction for a 2008 robbery at a Vegas casino that landed him in prison for up to 33 years. According to the Nevada Supreme Court, this appears to be his last shot at a retrial. He claimed that his attorneys were ineffective and allowed the jury to hear damaging evidence that should not have been allowed. The uh, Justice Ron Paraguire, writing for the three-judge panel, said Simpson's points to, Simpson points to nothing in the record to indicate whether the jury actually listened to the complaint of audio snippets, either in court or during deliberations. O.J. has served seven years of a 9- to 33-year state sentence. He and accomplices in 2007 robbed sports memorabilia from men he claimed had stolen it from them. For those who don't believe in karma, ladies and gentlemen, hello, welcome to the show. I don't have to go to bed I've got a small day tomorrow, small day tomorrow. I don't have to use my head. I got a small day tomorrow. I can sleep the day away and it won't cause too much sorrow, not tomorrow. So tonight this mouse will play He's got a small day tomorrow Now all the big wheels with all their big deals Are gonna need their sleep But I'm a dropper Who'd rather cop out than run with all Honey child, tonight's the night And there's a car I can borrow 
till tomorrow We can swing to broad daylight I got a small day tomorrow I don't have to play it cool I got a small day tomorrow Small day tomorrow I might try to play the fool I've got a small day tomorrow I keep open all night long Don't have to rise up tomorrow Not tomorrow People tell me that it's wrong Perhaps I'll wise up tomorrow Now all the big wheels With all the big deals Are gonna need their sleep But I'm a dropper Who'd rather cop Honey child, tonight's the night And there's a car I can borrow Till tomorrow We can swing right out of sight We've got a long night And a small day Tomorrow Small day tomorrow, small day tomorrow, I don't have to go to bed. From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this week's edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of bad banks. Well, 12 major banks have tentatively agreed to pay $1.87 billion. That sounds like a lot of money. 12 banks. They're going to settle allegations that they colluded to fix prices and lock out competitors in the market for insurance-like products that were widely traded before the financial crisis and helped to cause it. The deal would be one of the largest U.S. antitrust settlements because there are so few of them. The details still need to be hammered out. A judge would still need to improve, approve the deal, according to this report in the New York Times. Listen to some of the uh, the banks that agreed to this settlement. Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Citigroup. Because they haven't been involved in any other legal findings that they uh, screwed around with uh, people's money in the last 10 years or so. No. They've been lovely citizens. They met secretly along with other banks to kill proposals that would put the trading of these insurance-like products, credit default swaps, onto an exchange. The purpose of that is that they could be bought and sold like stocks and their prices would be transparent. In keeping trading private in a rigged market, the banks cheated investors out of, you know, billions of dollars. So they'll pay a couple back. 
There was no central place to go for a stream of prices. You had to go to the banks, and they controlled the business, and they charged high prices, said a lawyer involved in the case. An investor basically had to pay what they wanted. That's a good business. I'm buying a bank. Oh, I said, I'm buying... I'm buying a toy bank. Emails and phone calls to lawyers representing the banks were not immediately returned. A spokesman for Bank of America declined to comment. He probably was busy serving customers. Another defendant in the suit, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, said in a statement, it is pleased the case is close to resolution and it is committed to further developing credit default swaps market structure to ensure the market functions safely and effectively. Uh, those are products, credit default swaps. They're not products. They're pieces of paper bought by investors to protect themselves in case governments or companies default on their debts. They figured, notably in the financial crisis, especially in the near collapse of American International Group, better known as AIG, a giant insurer that sold protection to investors in home mortgages but couldn't pay out the policies when the housing market collapsed. AIG, though, eventually received... $182 billion from you and me in a government bailout. So it wasn't quite a victimless crime. The case of banks against the banks involved swaps they handled starting the fall of 2008, just as the economy was really starting to go under, which is why they were really bad banks. But we'll be seeing them in court again soon. Not really in court. You know, settling, not selecting, settling. And and watch for those perp walks of the bankers in charge. Oh, no, sorry about that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Last month, Rupert Murdoch went on Twitter to vent his frustration about an upcoming United Nations climate summit in New York. A week later, he blamed, quote, extreme greenies, extreme greenies, for hindering economic bro- growth. Seems beyond reason, he wrote. Uh, it's, uh, d- this assumes that Rupert writes his own tweets? Yeah, I think he does. He's got the time. On Wednesday, his 21st Century Fox paid $725 million for 73% of a partnership with National Ge- Geographic's media arm. This gives Murdoch and his empire control over the magazine revered for its science coverage. That has the magazine's fans worried, according to the Washington Post. Executives at Fox National Geographic underscored that the new partnership, which will be governed by a board with an equal number of representatives from each organization, would not affect the magazine's standards of reporting. Those are the same assurances he gave when he bought the Wall Street Journal and the Times of London and the thing and the thing. I don't think they would be investing in this brand if it weren't to keep the quality of what National Geographic stands for, says CEO of National Geographic, Gary Nell, ran NPR for a minute and a half. National Geographic's editor-in-chief, Susan... What what exactly is the piece of geography they're whistling through? National Geographic's editor-in-chief, Susan Goldberg, says Fox has acknowledged that they have not always represented the National Geographic brand in some of those programs on the National Geographic channel in a way we loved or even they loved. They put on shows they didn't love but added that the partnership was great news that would support the magazine's journalism. Now, I personally, you know, I don't know Rupert very well, or at all, honestly, but I don't think he's buying it to um, affect their coverage of, let's say, the science of climate change. 
you know, he still publishes a tabloid newspaper in the United Kingdom that that uh, prints coverage of scantily clad gals on page three every day, and now he has a an endless source of photos of scantily clad gals. News of Nice Corp, ladies and gentlemen. Nice people doing nice things. And now, news of the Olympic movement. Excuse me, I meant news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. We have so much news of the Olympic movement today. It's almost like an Olympics of Olympic movement news. A number of posters bearing the scrapped emblems for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics have been put up for internet auction, some fetching up to about $700. The posters were created by the Tokyo government and the organizing committee and put up at various municipal facilities in the Tokyo area until the logos were scrapped at the beginning of this month amid the plagiarism scandal involving the designer of the emblems. One auction website says its poster was obtained from a sports center of one of the municipalities. It may be wrinkled because it was rolled up. It's outrageous, says Tokyo Governor Yoichi Masuzoe. It's shameful to do something like this to make money. Yes, he he had a straight face when he said that. Speaking of money, Boston 2024, the defunct Olympic Bid Committee closed shop last, uh, no, in July with a multi-million dollar shortfall, prompting organizers to ask some vendors to accept less than they were owed. This according to internal documents obtained by the Boston Globe. The outstanding debts range from more than a million dollars owed to the architect who worked, worked closely with the committee to a few hundred dollars owed on a catering bill. When the bid collapsed, the nonprofit bid committee was confronting more than $4 million in outstanding payroll obligations and unpaid invoices with just half a million in cash on hand. Among the unpaid invoices that stands out, a representative for the David Ortiz Children's Fund. Ortiz is a beloved designated hitter for the Boston Red Sox, a volunteer member of the bid committee's board of directors, and he starred in a web video endorsing the Boston bid. He has a children's fund. The representative says Boston 2024 has still not paid the $7,500 it had committed for a table at a gala to benefit the organization, which works to provide pediatric health care in New England and the Dominican Republic. Days before Toronto must decide whether to bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics, critics are sounding the alarm over what they call unprecedented secrecy surrounding the process. This according to CTV News. Opponents of a possible bid say the mayor, John Tory, is keeping the details and costs of a potential Toronto proposal under wraps, while at least one member of the mayor's own council has accused him of conducting backroom deals. Well, that's what backrooms are for. That so little is known about the mayor's dealings so late in the process is troubling and extraordinary, said the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. Yes, you can major in that. This is where all these promises are made. This is where all of these deals are made, and they're usually made using public dollars. And when these things and these deals are done in private, it's a serious problem concerning transparency and accountability, said the academic at the head of uh, Center for Olympic Studies. The letter to the IOC doesn't commit Toronto to making a pitch for the 2024 Games. The mayor says it represents a serious step forward toward a bid and should not be seen as a placeholder. 
Members of the city's budget committee have expressed concerns about the cost of competing for and hosting the Olympics and who would foot the bill. Oh, please. Postponing debate until after the letter is filed is back to front, says a representative of a grassroots organization opposing a bid for the Games. What happens after the city submits its letter of intent, which would be September 15th, remains murky under new rules brought in by the International Olympic Committee. Apparently, details of the new bidding process won't be released until after the deadline. Never too late. To Rio now, where the president, Dilma Rousseff, is... uh, under scrutiny because of a corruption scandal centered on the state-controlled uh, oil company Petrobras that uh, impinges on the Olympics because the scandal involves a decade-long kickback scheme that saw what prosecutors say was $2 billion in bribes, bribes paid to politically appointed executives of the state-run oil company who awarded Brazil's top construction and engineering firms contracts whose final costs were wildly inflated. It's a nice little setup, and CNBC reports that the major companies involved in the preparations for the Games have been indicted over their involvement in the scandal, meaning Olympic venue construction could slow. And, finally, back in Tokyo... The organizing committee of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics says it has used photos taken from the Internet without permission in its press kits. The kits were used during a briefing held by the committee at the end of last month backing the Japanese logo designer in his claim that he didn't copy a Belgian theater logo. That, of course, was settled by dumping the logo. Of eight photos that appeared in the kits to explain the emblem's usage, three were used without permission, the committee said. One of the three photos was taken from the personal blog of a Japanese woman living in Britain. Her blog carries a notice prohibiting unauthorized copy or reproduction of images there. The committee has apologized to her and agreed to pay royalties. The committee has already been in contact with the owners of the other two photos. The committee's marketing bureau used the image in question, could have used other images without consent as well, according to a committee official, adding it was investigating the matter. The unauthorized use of photos is an unthinkable blunder, says the executive director of communications at the Olympic Committee. It's investigating how this could have happened. Well, I I think I know. It's because it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We'll calm down now. You know, I get so excited by a movement. Melissa Joan Hart, the actress known for her roles in Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Melissa and Joey, recently blasted the media for what she called poor September 11th coverage. She expressed her anger via Twitter and Instagram with uh, posts. While she specifically expressed her dismay with CNN and Fox News, she also took the time to give approval to NBC for its coverage of 9-11. But she continued with her rant, complaining there weren't enough, wasn't enough coverage of the tragedy. She believes television news networks should be doing more to pay tribute to such an important event in our nation's history. She, comparing that to the coverage the Kardashians get. Many social media users were upset at the fact that Hart later in the day announced that her clothing line for kids, King of Hearts, would give free shipping to anyone who used the code 911. 
After posting the plug for her company, Hart was accused of exploiting the holiday for her own personal financial gain. She insisted that this wasn't the case. Then she issued a formal apology via Facebook. I want to apologize for the free shipping post. It was meant in my small way to give something back. I wanted to cover the shipping charges. It's a heartfelt gesture, not an exploit of 9-11. I see now how it was interpreted and viewed as being in bad taste. I apologize. It was a mistake, unquote. At the uh, big anti-Iran deal rally in Washington on Wednesday, Glenn Beck appeared along with, you remember Glenn Beck? appeared along with Sarah Palin. Remember Sarah Palin and Donald Trump? Yeah. In reaction to Sarah Palin's speech, Beck said, Sarah Palin has become a clown. I'm embarrassed that I was once for Sarah Palin. At issue is Palin's support for Trump, whom Beck can't stand. Beck later took to Facebook to explain his frustrations and to apologize for using the word clown. I guess the clowns were offended. He's... uh, Disturbed by Palin's support of Trump, someone he describes as, quote, a bully, sexist, cruel, and egomaniac, and narcissist in ways that makes Barack Obama seem like St. Francis. What do you mean, Frankie Animals? St. Francis is gangland name, ladies and gentlemen. Dateline Boston, a top administrator at Wheelock College. This is its first appearance in the news, as far as I know. Apologized to faculty, staff, and students for a welcome letter she sent last month that plagiarized material written by others, including the president of Harvard. The apology came after the Boston Globe wrote about the letter written by Shirley Malone Fenner, vice president for academic affairs at the school. The emailed apology to the community reiterated what Fenner had said in a comment to the newspaper that she used words from others welcoming messages without attribution. Quote, this is an action for which I am regretful. I apologize for my behavior, which was not reflective of what we expect from members of our academic community. I am also sorry for the negative attention that this mistake has had for Wheelock. Hey, babe, it's attention. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Dayline Schaumburg, Illinois, the CEO of Office Depot, apologized this week to a suburban Chicago woman who said the company uh, discriminated against her religious beliefs when its employees told her that making copies of an anti-abortion prayer violated company policy. Maria Goldstein, who was Roman Catholic, asked the Office Depot in Schaumburg to make 500 copies of a prayer for Planned Parenthood. The prayer was composed by the Reverend Frank Pavone, National Director of the Anti-Abortion Group Priests for Life. We sincerely apologize to Ms. Goldstein for her experience. Our initial reaction was not at all related to her religious beliefs, said the Chairman and CEO, Roland Smith. We invite her to return to Office Depot if she still wishes to print the files. Never too late, Department. The Stratford, Connecticut High School football coach is under scrutiny after some of his players were blistered and burned by the team's scorching artificial turf field this week. Parents told NBC Connecticut that head coach T.J. Cavaliere instructed the team to crawl across the AstroTurf at Stratford High on their bare hands Monday when temperatures climbed past 90 degrees. Sunny Turf, you remember her, she was a weather girl. Sunny Turf can get even hotter. It wasn't just a hot field. These kids, their skin melted off their hands, said a candidate for the town council. Cavaliere wrote a letter to parents explaining the exercise was in response to players' behavioral issues at Friday's scrimmage. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I was not aware that the turf could cause blisters on the boys' hands, the coach wrote. I apologize for what happened and have learned a valuable lesson. Never too late for the coach to learn a lesson, don't you think? Ask me sometime about my swimming instructor in high school. Mr. Bobinette. 
He was worse. But not now. Deadline London. Petra Laszlo, the Hungarian camera woman who was fired this week after she was filmed kicking and tripping migrants, including a father carrying a child. She's apologized. She said she was defending herself. I was scared as the crowd rushed toward me and then something snapped in me, Laszlo wrote in a letter to the conservative daily newspaper Magyar Nemzet. I read it for the cartoons. Laszlo is under police investigation, says she does not deserve the recriminations that have followed. Quote, I'm not a heartless racist children-kicking camera woman, she wrote, although she... I do not deserve the political witch hunts against me, nor the smears or often the death threats. I'm just a woman, and now an unemployed mother of small children, who made a bad decision in a situation of panic. I am truly sorry, unquote. Laszlo was working for an internet television channel associated with Hungary's far-right party, Jobbik, which is railed against immigration. She probably didn't know that. New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton has apologized to James Blake one day after the former tennis professional was handcuffed by officers after a case of mistaken identity. Quote, I spoke to Mr. Blake a short time ago and personally apologized for the incident, Bratton said. Mr. Blake indicated he would be willing to meet with internal affairs as our investigation continues. Blake's mistaken arrest happened while police were investigating an identity theft ring at Manhattan's Grand Hyatt New York Hotel. I built that hotel. That's the most incredible hotel. I And mistook him for someone they believed to be involved in the identity theft ring. He said he was standing outside the hotel waiting to head to the U.S. Open when he looked up from his cell phone and saw an officer charging him. Blake said the plainclothes officer, who body slammed him to the pavement, never identified himself as a police officer and had no badge around his neck. Or on his belt. Did you look under his shirt? And Terry Gilliam is not dead yet. He's alive and well, according to Terry Gilliam. He laughed off an inaccurate variety story that reported he was dead earlier in the week. Quote, I apologize for being dead, especially to those who've already bought tickets to my upcoming talks, but Variety has announced my demise. He captioned a black and white Facebook photo. Don't believe their ret- retraction and apology. Variety's pre-written obituary for the filmmaker was accidentally published on Tuesday. Fans of Monty Python went crazy on social media, either upset about the news or learning afterward it was fake. Variety quickly took down the post after the mistake. We're deeply sorry for the mistake, said Variety. And James Bond author Anthony Horowitz spoke with the Daily Mail newspaper in London, newspaper to promote his latest novel in the series. As part of the discussion, he showed he shared his thoughts about whether Idris Elba would make a good bond, a topic apparently of much discussion, not in my circles. Idris Elba is a terrific actor, but I can think of other black actors who would do it better, he told the paper. For me, Idris Elba is a bit too rough to play the part. It's not a color issue. I think he's probably a bit too street for bond. Is it a question for being so- suave? Yeah, unquote. The author's comments didn't sit too well with the public. Well, the public knows. Many fans shared their disagreement with Horowitz on social media, leaving some to deem his commentary as racist. He issued the following apology. I'm really sorry my comments about Idris Elba have caused offense. He isn't alone in his feelings toward Elba playing 007. Rush Limbaugh has expressed his disinterest in seeing him play the title role. Well, if that's not the bottom of the barrel of apologies, ladies and gentlemen... I don't know what is. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this pro- Oh, wait a minute. There's one more. You heard on this program last week, 
that Hillary Clinton went on a news broadcast with Andrea Mitchell and said she was sorry for the confusion caused by the whole email controversy. Didn't say she was sorry for her behavior, but just sorry for the confusion. The New York Times has a long piece this week, had a long piece this week, about the torturous road, the torturous uh, series of discussions inside Hillary land that led to that concession and to a further concession on Tuesday when she appeared on a television morning program and actually said she was a, she was sorry for the mistake in using a private email server for her government email business. Uh, as I say, the, the Times piece says uh, there was a great, great deal of discussion preceding those two announcements. Uh, a lot of her advisors, including her close advisor, whom she treats almost like a daughter, according to the paper, Huma Ebedin, the wife of, yes, Anthony Weiner, uh, those advisors had said that Hillary Clinton should apologize. Bill Clinton had stoutly resisted that uh, suggestion. The, uh, the Washington Post, I think, reports this week that among the adjustments being made in the Hillary campaign to the surge in uh, poll numbers for Bernie Sanders. By the way, the uh, left-wing candidate for Labor Party leadership, sort of the British Bernie Sanders, gray-haired, bearded, veteran, member of parliament, Jeremy Corbyn, won overwhelmingly in the election for Labor Party head over this weekend. Um, that's a long way from him being elected prime minister, or his, the Labor Party getting a majority and him ending up being prime minister of England. But uh, don't, you know, the British establishment shouldn't worry any about even that distant possibility because given the uh, record of the United States when democratically leftist governments happened in uh, Iran and Guatemala and Chile, uh, if Jeremy Corbyn does get elected, we'll overthrow him. Anyway, Bernie Sanders is surging in the polls and uh, apparently the Clinton campaign is uh, recalibrating, uh, trying to make her more authentic and to show more flashes of humor. What could be wrong with that? Sounds like another edition of Clinton something next here on the show. Clinton something, the candidacy years. Well, first off, I do want to thank all of you for coming by on such short notice. Oh, no problem, Toots. I live here. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> and uh, my thanks to my indispensable Huma for organizing the food. I hope everybody likes organic falafel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, Roger, mm -hmm. this meeting was really kind of organized at your, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say insistence. No, say it. It's true. <laughs> okay. That'll be part of my new letting it all hang out strategy. <laughs> and that's part of my showing more humor strategy. Hon, hmm? let's get to your getting past the introductory remarks strategy. 
Okay, Roger, why don't you do what what you called this meeting to do? Thanks, Madam Secretary. Mm -hmm. You all know me. You know I've been one of Hillary's biggest bundlers since since before there was bundling. In fact, in the old days, Roger would just threaten to fire any of his employees who wouldn't donate. (laughs) Just some more humor. Oh, it's delightful. Thank you. So I felt we needed to have a little confab, a kind of a non-emergency emergency meeting to fine-tune or maybe even to totally retune how all of us, especially the candidate, are uh, dealing with the email situation. Uh, maybe we should just start by taking the temperature of the donor community. Parker, mm-hmm. uh, what are your friends in hedge fund world telling you? Uh, thanks, Roger. And thanks, Huma, for helping to organize this and for the falafel. You know, at this rate, maybe the falafel should be running for president. <laughs> <laughs> Too much humor? Maybe. Uh, my folks, as you know, have been telling me f- for months that they have no apprehension or concern about the candidate's populist language directed at Wall Street for reasons that I don't think we need to go into here. Good. Uh, they ha- do have some apprehension and some concern about this email thing, which you, Hillary, very correctly said a while back was a two-day story. And now here we are at day mm-hmm. uh, 113 or something. I'm not good at numbers. I'm in the investment business. <laughs> well, now everybody's got a humor strategy. <laughs> I think my guys and gals are looking for a comfort zone here, and they're not seeing one yet. They want to see it, but they're not going to lie to me about it. It's uh, stressful enough for them to lie to their clients. (laughs) Now, I can't tell whether that's humor or not, but okay. Roger, you want to pick up on this? Sure. Uh, I've gotten several calls this week from one of our big L.A. donors. Mm -hmm. He had two messages for me. Okay. One is that we have got to stop the bleeding, like yesterday. What was the second message? Uh, Munchkins in Elfland opens nationwide on November 26th. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Huma, let's see if we can send somebody to see it. Uh, Actually, I I wanted, if this is an appropriate time, to uh, weigh in on this whole sorry business. Yes, you all know Huma not only arranges events like this, but she's a really, really valued advisor to me. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, hon. Thanks. Look, we're in a Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn political world, and and we're partying like it's 1999. (laughs) You know, we've spent way too much time resisting this moment, but we're here. We're past that now. You've said that you're sorry once on TV. Mm -hmm. Now you've got to own it. Own what, darling? Own the concept of sorry. Go on Jimmy Fallon and do the the sorry dance. Go on Colbert and play a game you invented called... Who's the sorriest? Heck, go on Rush Limbaugh with a list of things you're sorry for that you didn't even do. Like like Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> <laughs> you want people to get so sick of you saying you're sorry that the media will beg you to start talking policy again. Well, if you I... believe that, hon, you believe that falafel was organic. Oh. <laughs> I've said this before. I'll say this till the Pope gets circumcised. You had nothing to apologize for. You got nothing to be sorry for. This is being sold as the Whopper, and it's smaller than White Castle. Well, I think Huma's point, which she's made to me in private many times, is that there's a hunger for authenticity out Mm. there this cycle, and... And there's nothing more authentic than owning up to and owning your mistakes. And it was a mistake. I mean, I've said that it wasn't often enough to know that. Not going to litigate that in front of our donor friends here, but you know what's really authentic? You know what Bernie Sanders has that you don't? An accent that uh, even grates on the ears of New Yorkers. (laughs) (laughs) Gray hair. Nothing's more authentic than not dyeing your hair. That sends a message that everybody understands. Here I am, no fooling. 
little bit of makeup, of course. We're not talking crazy talk here. But this is the real me. Shoot, hon. You think I couldn't run and win with this mop of whiteness on my old head? I'd like to hear what our friends in the donor community think of that notion. Um, I'm wondering if it might strike our hedge fund friends as uh, somewhat impulsive. You know, she'll do this. Who knows what else she'll do? That's sort of upsetting a uh, apple cart of stable governance that I think you've been trying to project. I didn't realize I was trying to project an apple cart. Okay, I'm dumping the humor strategy right now. Uh, my instinct is that the L.A. donors would think it's ballsy, it's mm -hmm. provocative, mm -hmm. and it could always be undone in an afternoon, along with, you know, some very subtle work, maybe. But, you know, unlike reversing a policy position, going back to dyeing my hair is a flip-flop anybody could see. That's a message everybody can understand, too, Bill. Mm -hmm. No, I think this is the... The kind of idea that's going to take more than one afternoon to work out all the landmines. Mm -hmm. well, while you're thinking about it, mm -hmm. you want to go on Howard Stern and say you're sorry for Chelsea's work on NBC? <laughs> <laughs> no. Youthful angst and mature hunger for power. Together they add up to Clinton something. The candidacy years.
now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Addy the Atom, are you enjoying the heat wave here in Southern California? I'm sh- are you kidding? I'm schwitzing here. You're... Did you know that uh, September 1st was Japan's National Disaster Prevention Day? No, I missed it. I didn't buy anything for it. Mm. The Mainichi newspaper in Japan... It's my favorite. ...ran a story showing that absolutely nothing had been done in the three years since the government ordered new disaster response guidelines for 17 nuclear research and storage facilities, including the one in Aomori... Um, Aomori, which has enough plutonium to make hundreds of nuclear bombs. Meanwhile, Japan's first nuclear reactor to be restarted after the Fuk-inspired shutdown at Sendai, it's my favorite reactor, Wow, went back online uh, last month. Things have not been going smoothly, according to the Daily Beast. On August 20th, an alarm at Unit Number 1 went off at 2.19 p.m. Well, the alarm works. After seawater apparently leaked into the reactor's secondary cooling system. Plans to return to full capacity were delayed. The restart had been delayed again and again for uh, some pertinent reasons after the disaster at Fuk and a review of the accident by Parliament-appointed investigators. Japan overhauled its watchdog structure and uh, established the Nuclear Regulation Authority. The agency was given more independence to lessen conflict of interest. Regulations now require plant operators to fortify tsunami and earthquake defenses, install safeguards to prevent radiation leaks, and cool reactors in the event of a meltdown, and ensure that emergency command centers can operate during natural disasters, like the historic flooding this week. In Sendai, the NRA refused the reactor's reopening several times, admonishing the operator for failing to meet the new requirements and conducting sloppy inspections. Now the inspections have to be what neat. I, in the letter to the company, the agency wrote, there are not only careless mistakes and, in, and incorrect entries in the paperwork, besides basic fact-checking needs to be done. Leaks in the reactor's condenser appear to have been missed in the initial inspections. There are also uh, a number of volcanoes near the plant. The Nuclear Regulatory Authority states the volcano, the main one, Mount Sakurajima. You have trouble with that? I did. Uh, is That, that uh, volcano is 30 miles from the reactor. According to Kyushu Electric Power, there are 14 known active volcanoes within 100 miles of the Sendai reactor. The company says its new equipment is fully prepared to withstand 15 centimeters, about 6 inches, of volcanic ash. No volcano can make more than that. It's impossible. The number of Japanese nuclear reactors likely to restart in the next few years has halved, according to Reuters, hit by legal challenges and worries about meeting those tougher safety standards. Of the other 42 operable reactors remaining in the country after Fuk, just seven are likely to be turned on in the next few years, down from the 14 predicted in a similar survey last year. These findings are based on reactor inspection data from the NRA, court rulings and interviews with local authorities, utilities, and energy experts. They also show nine reactors are unlikely ever to restart, and the fate of the remaining 26 looks uncertain. Life is uncertain. Legal challenges from local residents have hit all atomic plants. Tougher safety standards, stricter implementation of rules have been hitting restarts 
highlighting the pitfalls of rebooting in the industry, Kyushu Electric was forced to slow the ramp up of Sendai Number One. And engineers warned that firing up reactors that had been offline for prolonged periods could be fraught with troubles like the ones at Sendai Number One, which had troubles with pumping equipment. So it's trouble if you restart, and it's, it's costly if you don't. Mm-hmm. An improperly programmed training simulator at Entergy's Riverbend Nuclear Plant in St. Francisville, Louisiana, contributed to the errors made by operators attempting to respond to an emergency shutdown of the plant's nuclear reactor on Christmas Day last year, according to the NRC. The conclusion was part of a violation notice sent to Energy Operations, owner of the Riverbend station. After a five-month inspection, the reactor scrammed. That's not what you think. It's not what you think it means. It means control rods were dropped into the reactor's fuel core to halt the nuclear reaction, which creates heat. Okay. So I shouldn't be worried when I heard the word scrammed? No. Okay. The violation notice concluded that the training simulator failed to demonstrate expected plant response to operator input and to normal transient and accident conditions to which the simulator had been designed to respond. These simulator modeling issues led to negative training of operators. This subsequently complicated the operator's response to a reactor scram. No, relax. Okay. In the actual plant, on Christmas Day 2014, commission officials rated the violation as white, the second lowest level on a four-color violation schedule. The notice didn't include a fine amount. I guess it was fine. Clean, cheap, too safe to meet her. Our friend, the Adam. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? The award-winning news of the warm. Don't even remember what the award is. Was. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. By the way, Addie the Adam left this the tiniest imaginable sweat stains on the. Uh, on the copy I was reading here. Severe wildfires are often thought to be increasing, but new research published in the international science journal PLOS-1 shows the severe fires from 1984 through a couple years ago burned at rates that were less frequent than historical rates in dry forests of the western USA overall. Fire severity did not increase during this period. That's kind of better than um, we've been led to expect. The study compared records of recent severe fires across 63 million acres of dry forests, about 20% of total conifer forest area in the western U.S., with data on severe fires before 1900 from multiple sources. Infrequent severe fires are major ecosystem renewal events that maintain biological diversity, provide essential habitat for wildlife, and diversify forest landscapes so they're more resilient to future disturbances, said the leader of the study. Recent severe fires have not increased because of mismanagement of dry forests or unusual fuel buildup since these fires overall are occurring at lower rates than they did before 1900. These data suggest that federal forest restoration and wildfire programs can be redirected to restore and manage severe fires at historical rates rather than suppress them. Tell that to the people living in homes right near forests. Babe, the world's grassy biomes are key contributors to biodiversity and ecosystem services and are under immense pressure from conversion to agriculture and tree planting. This is uh, an article in the October edition of 
bioscience. The authors argue that forest and tree-focused environmental policies and conservation initiatives have potentially dire ecological consequences for undervalued ecosystems, grasslands, savannas, and open canopy woodlands. To illustrate this forest bias and its consequences, the uh, authors review the World Resources Institute and International Union for Conservation of Nature's Atlas of Forest Landscape Restoration Opportunities, a tool to achieve a challenge to restore 150 million hectares of deforested and degraded lands by 2020. The bioscience author's global analysis indicates that the atlas erroneously mapped 9 million square kilometers as providing opportunities for forest restoration. These uh, errors occur because the atlas producers considered any non-forest area where climate could permit forest development to be deforested. Problems like this, combined with the failure of United Nations environmental policymakers to recognize grassy biomes for protection, constitute a significant threat to biodiversity, the authors argue. They suggest identifying vulnerable grasslands through precise mapping, recognizing the value of vegetation heterogeneity, integrating forest and grassy biome conservation initiatives, and changing international policies to preserve naturally non-forest ecosystems. The authors caution, so long as carbon stored in trees is valued above other ecosystem services, the conservation values of grassy biomes will remain threatened by agricultural conversion, fire exclusion, and ill-placed tree planting. So go hug some grass. The Southern Ocean, which each year soaks up billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, has reversed a worrying decline in its annual intake of the greenhouse gas. This comes as little surprise to climate scientists who thought it inevitable at some point the vast ocean around Antarctica would start absorbing more CO2 as atmospheric concentrations of the gas rise. But a study which pulls together millions of scattered field observations brings a much clearer understanding of the activity of the Southern Ocean as the world's most important buffer against global warming. The work was published in Science magazine. The sounds like good news that the Southern Ocean is taking up more CO2, but of course that means the ocean gets more acidic, which means that uh, some marine creatures which need calcium carbonate to build their shells so they can live uh, will not fare so well in the higher acidity waters. You win some, you lose some. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. you didn't notice, ladies and gentlemen, Rick Perry announced he was suspending his um, campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, announcing that uh, those glasses just didn't make him look smart enough. 
That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system with Pan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the East Coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet 7.49 megahertz shortwave on the Mighty 104 in Berlin around the world via the Internet. At two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast from iTunes, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like Rick Perry being back in the race, if you'd agree to join them with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. Tipitla Show Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program and a playlist of the music heard here on, always available at harryshearer.com, along with your big chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. And me, I'm the Harry Shearer on the Twitter Join the conversation. It's, it's kind of two-way, unless I choose not to answer you. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from sweltering Santa Monica.